everybody, Sucre Yaro here, and you're listening to Year of Blank, Year of Stories. Today we're finally going to be finishing My Sister's Keeper by Jody Picoult, which I did not say this last episode because, as you heard my aggressive complaining in the beginning, it was a re-record because I accidentally deleted the first one, so I wasn't trying my hardest to include every bit of commentary that I had into that episode, but... We are finally, we're starting with Sarah's chapter. We left off where Sarah's chapter is right about to begin. And she is finally in the present day, everybody. She is finally in the present day. Her chapter perspective is now finally on what's going on now. And I've constantly talked about Sarah Fitzgerald's chapters and how it's, like, very telling of her character that she's so stuck in the past. But... I didn't bring up, like, how much I hated that, because, like, I had a conversation with my mother. In the first recording, I was constantly complaining about Sarah, as I have in the past. I'm not going to erase that. But then I had a conversation with my mother about Sarah Fitzgerald, because my mother has also read this. And she brought up how it's very difficult to tell about, like, what you would do in that situation until you are in that situation, which God, not God, I don't believe in God, which let's hope you never are. That's a neutral statement. Non-religious statements. (laughs) Speaking, so since I just suddenly got to religion, I was raised Catholic, Either Catholic or Christian, I really don't know the difference. If someone knows the difference and they can tell me, please do. I was raised that way, but then I was like, nah, fuck that. And now I'm floating between everything. But I still have, like, a lot of religious language. Like, dear God and thank God and oh my God and all that. Because of how I was raised. But I am... Because this is going to, like, a bunch of people that may not get, like, the stance of Jeebus. Then I'm gonna try to be more neutral. So, that's a goal. I think I've told a couple goals here, you know? Like, that whole tangent about giving more credit to authors and people to hold me accountable. But, um... This is a genuine thing, just like the author thing. Like, I want to be neutral on religious speaking. Unless it's mentioned in the book, then that's when it will happen that it needs to be, like, a little talk. Because the next book that I'm reading, I haven't read before. So, like, this is the first book that is completely new to me and possibly you. I don't know what books you read in your life, but I know what I've read in mine, and I've never read the book that's gonna be next episode after this one. I'm messing around with a bike lock, so if you hear random rustling and clanking noises, that's me doing a little fiddle thing. Holy shit, dude. Ah! Ah! This is fine. No, it's not. No, it's not. Free me. Free me. Oh my god. I trapped myself in a bike lock and it hurts. No. Get off. Oh my god. (laughs) 
So pro tip, don't don't wrap bike locks around you. <laughs> that sounds like common sense, but to my little rat brain, it was not. So now we've learned. Um, and with that said, I'm just gonna start reading. I did find my bookmark that I lost yesterday. That I, like, commented on, like, not being able to find it. It was on the floor. So I'm just gonna start reading. Sarah. Present day. There is a curious thing that happens with the passage of time. A calcification of character. See, if the light hits Brian's face the right way, I can still see the pale blue hue of his eyes that has always made me think of an island ocean I had yet to swim in. Beneath the fine lines of his smile, there's the cleft of his chin, the first feature I looked for in the faces of newborn children. There is his resolve, his quiet will, and a steady peace with himself that I have always wished would rub off on me. These are the base elements that made me fall in love with my husband. If there are times you do not recognize him now, maybe this isn't a, isn't a drawback. Change isn't always for the worst. The shell that forms around a piece of sand that looks to some people like an irritation, and to others, like a pearl. Brian's eyes dart from Anna, who is picking at a scab on her thumb, to me. He watches me like a mouse watches a hawk. There is something about this that makes me ache. Is this really what he thinks of me? Does everyone? I wish there was not a courtroom between us. I wish I could walk up to him. Listen, I would say. This is not how I thought our lives would go. And maybe we cannot find our way out of this alley. But there is no one I'd rather be lost with. Listen, I'd say. Maybe I was wrong. Mrs. Fitzgerald, Judge DeSaldo asks. Do you have any questions for the witness? It is, I realize, a good term for a spouse. What else does a husband or a wife do but attest to each other's errors in judgment? I get up slowly from my seat. Hello, Brian, I say, and my voice is not nearly as steady as I would have hoped. Sarah, he answers. Following that exchange, I have no idea what to say. A memory washes over me. We had wanted to get away, but couldn't decide where to go. So we get into the so we got into the car and drove, and every half hour we'd let one of the kids pick an exit or tell us to turn right or left. We wound up in Seal Cove, Maine, and then stopped, because Jesse's next direction would have landed us in the Atlantic. We rented a cabin with no heat, no electricity, and our three kids afraid of the dark. I do not realize I have been speaking out loud until Brian answers. I know, he says. We put so many candles on that floor, I thought for sure we'd burn the place down. It rained for five days. And on the sixth day, when the weather cleared, the green heads were so bad we couldn't even stand to be outside. Oh, wait, they're talking, like, back and forth, so I'm going to clarify who's speaking. So, it rained for five days, that ends Brian, starts Sarah, and on the sixth day, when the weather cleared, the green heads were so bad we couldn't even stand to be outside, and Sarah switched to Brian. And then Jesse got poison ivy and his eyes swelled shut. Excuse me, Campbell Alexander interrupts. Sustained, Judge DeSaldo says. Where's this going, counselor? We hadn't been going anywhere, and the place we wound up was awful, and still I wouldn't- Oh, she's not speaking. So, she is not speaking right now, if it seemed like that. 
We hadn't been going anywhere, and the place we wound up was awful, and still I wouldn't have traded that week for the world. When you don't know where you're headed, you find places no one else would ever think to explore. Start Brian speaking now. When Kate wasn't sick, Brian says slowly, carefully, we've had some great times. Um, switch to Sarah. Don't you think Anna would miss those if Kate were gone? Campbell is out of his seat, just as, I, just as I'd expect. Objection! The George... <laughs> what the fuck was that? I'm sorry for whatever that was. I don't know what I just did. I... Continu continuing on. Uh, the judge holds up his hand and nods for Brian, nods to Brian for his answer. We all will, he says. And in that moment, the strangest thing happens. Brian and I, facing each other in poles apart, flip like magnets sometimes can, and instead of pushing each other away, we suddenly seem to be on the same side. We are young and pulse to pulse for the first time. We are old and wondering how we have walked this enormous distance in so short a period of time. We are watching fireworks on television on a dozen New Year's Eves. Three sleeping children wedged between us in our bed, pressed so tight that I can feel Brian's pride even though we are not, we too are not touching. Suddenly it does not matter that he has moved out with Anna, that he has questioned some of the decisions about Kate. He did what he thought was right, just the same as me. And I can't fault him for it. Life sometimes, life sometimes gets so bogged down to the in the details. You forget you are living it. There is always another appointment to be met, another bill to pay, another symptom presenting, another uneventful day to be notched onto the wooden wall. We have synchronized our watches, studied our calendars, existed in minutes, and completely forgotten to step back and see what we've accomplished. If we lose Kate today, we will have had her for 16 years, and no one can take that away. In ages from now, when it is hard to bring back to bring back the picture of her face when she laughed, or the feel of her hand inside mine, or the perfect pitch of her voice, I will have Brian to say, Don't you remember? It was like this. The judge's voice breaks into my reverie. Mrs. Fitzgerald, are you finished? There has never been a need for me to cross-examine Brian. I have always known his answers. What I've forgotten are the questions. Now she's speaking. Almost. I turn to my husband. Brian, I ask, when are you coming home? In the bowels of the court building are a sturdy row of vending machines, none of which have anything you'd want to eat. After Judge DeSalvo calls a recess, I wander down there and stare at the Starbursts and the Pringles and the Cheetos trapped in their corkscrew cells. The Oreos are your best shot, Brian says from behind me. I turn around in time to see him feed the machine 75 cents. Simple. Classic. He pushes two buttons and the cookies begin their suicide plunge to the bottom of the machine. He leads me to the table, scarred and stained by people who have carved their er their eternal initials and graffitied their inner thoughts across the top. I didn't know what to say to you on the, on the stand, I admit, and then hesitate. Brian, do you think we've been good parents? I'm thinking of Jesse, who I gave up on so long ago, of Kate, 
who I could not fix, of Anna. I don't know, Ryan says. Does anyone? He hands me the package of Oreos. When I open my mouth to tell him I'm not hungry, Ryan pushes a cookie inside. It is rich and rough against my tongue. Suddenly, I am famished. Brian brushes the crumbs from my lips as if I am made of fine china. I let him. I think maybe I have never tasted anything this sweet. Brian and Anna move back home that night. We both tuck her in. We both kiss her. Brian goes to take a shower. In a little while, I will go, I will go to the hospital. But right now, I sit across from Anna on Kate's bed. Are you going to lecture me? She asks. Not the way you think. I finger the edge of one of Kate's pillows. You are not a bad person because you want to be yourself. Okay, switching to Anna at that point. I never... I hold up my hand. What I mean is that those thoughts, they're human. And just because you turn out differently than everyone's imagined you would doesn't mean that you've failed in some way. A kid who gets teased in one school might move to to a different one, and be the p- most popular girl there, just because no one has any other expectations of her. Or a person who goes to med school because his entire family is full of doctors might find out that what he really wants to be is an artist instead. I take a deep breath and shake my head. Am I making any sense? Switch to Anna. Not really. That makes me smile. Okay, no long- Anna wasn't speaking at that point. That makes me smile. Start speak. I guess I'm saying that you remind me of someone. Anna comes up on an elbow. Who? Me, I say. When you have been with your partner for so many years, they become the glove compartment map that you've worn dog-eared and white-creased. The trail you recognize so well you could draw it by heart, and for this very reason keep it with you on journeys at all times. And yet, when you least expect it, one day you open your eyes and there is an unfamiliar turn-off, a vantage point that wasn't there before, and you have to stop and wonder if maybe this landmark isn't new at all, but rather something you have missed all along. Brian lies beside me on the bed. He doesn't say anything, just puts his hand on the valley between, made by the curve of my neck. Then he kisses me, long and bittersweet. This I expect, but not the next. He bites down on my lips so hard that I taste blood. Ow, I say, trying to laugh a little, make light of it. But he doesn't laugh or apologize. He leans forward, licks it off. It makes me jump inside. This is Brian, and this is not Brian, and both of these things are remarkable. I run my own tongue over the blood, copper and slick. I open like an orchid, make my body a cradle, and feel his breath travel down my throat, over my breasts. He rests his head for a moment on my belly, and just as much as that bite was unexpected, there is now a pang of the familiar. This is what he would do each night, a ritual, when I was pregnant. Then he moves again. He rises over me, a second sun, and fills me with light and heat. We are a study of contrasts, hard to soft, fair to dark, frantic to smooth, and yet there is something about the fit of us that makes me realize neither of us would be quite right without the other. We are a Mobius strip, two continuous bodies, an impossible tangle. We're going to lose her, I whisper, and even I don't know if I'm talking about Kate or Anna. Brian kisses me. Stop, he says.
After that, we don't talk anymore. That's safest. Wednesday. Yet from those flames, no light, but rather darkness visible. John Milton, Paradise Lost. Julia. Izzy is sitting in the living room when I come back from my morning run. You okay? She asks. Yeah. I unlace my sneakers, wipe the sweat off my forehead. Why? Because normal people don't go jogging at 4.30 a.m. Well, I had some energy to burn off. I go into the kitchen, but the brawn coffee maker I've programmed to have my hazelnut ready at this very moment hasn't done its job. I check Eva's plug and press some of her buttons, but the whole LED display is shot. Damn it, I say, yanking the cord out of the wall. This isn't old enough to be broken. Izzy comes up beside me and fiddles with the system. Is she under warranty? Switch to Julia speaking. I don't know. I don't care. All I know is when you pay for something that's supposed to give you a cup of coffee, you deserve to get your fucking cup of coffee. I slam down the empty glass carafee so hard it breaks in the sink. Then I slide down against the cabinets and start to cry. Izzy kneels down next to me. What did he do? The same exact thing is, I sob. I am so damn stupid. She puts her arms around me. Boiling oil, she suggests. Botulism? Castration? You pick. That makes me smile a little. You'd do it too. Only because you'd do it right back for me. I lean against my sister's shoulder. I thought lightning wasn't supposed to strike in the same place twice. Sure it does, Izzy tells me, but only if you're too dumb to move. The first person to greet me at court the next morning isn't a person at all, but Judge the dog. He comes slinking around a corner with his ears flattened, no doubt running away from the sound of his owner's raised voice. Hey, I say, soothing, but Judge wants none of it. He latches onto the bottom of my suit jacket. Campbell's paying the dry-cleaning bill, I swear it, and starts to drive me toward the fray. I can hear Campbell before I turn the corner. I wasted time and manpower, and you know what? That's not the worst of it. I wasted my own good judgment about a client. Yeah, well, you aren't the only one who judged wrong, Anna argues back. I hired you because I thought you had a spine. She pushes past me. Asshole, she mutters under her breath. In that moment, I remember the way I felt when I woke up alone on that boat, disappointed, drifting, angry at myself for getting into this situation. Why the hell wasn't I angry at Campbell? Judge leaps up on Campbell, scraping at his chest with his paws. Get down, he orders, and then he turns around and sees me. You weren't supposed to hear all that. Switch to Julia speaking. I'll bet. He sits heavily on a bridge chair in, in the conference room and, and passes his hand over his face. She refuses to take the stand. Switch to Julia. Well, for God's sake, Campbell, she can't confront her mother in her own living room, much less in a cross-exam. What did you expect? He looks up at me, piercing. What are you going to tell DeSaldo? Are you asking because of Anna or because you're afraid of losing this trial? Switch to Campbell. Thanks, but I gave up my, but I gave my conscience up for Len. 
Switch to Julia. Ugh. That voice cracked, though. Aren't you going to ask yourself why a 13-year-old girl's gotten under your skin? He grimaces. Why don't you just butt out, Julia, and ruin my case like you were planning to do in the first place? Switch to Julia. This isn't your case, it's Anna's. Although I can certainly see why you'd think otherwise. Switch to Campbell. What's that supposed to mean? Switch to Julia. You're camp- You're cowards. You're both hell-bent on running away from yourself, I say. I know what consequences Anna's afraid of. What about you? Switch to Campbell. I don't know what you're talking about. Switch- Switch to Julia. No? Where's the one-liner? Or is it too hard to joke about something that hits so close to the bone? You back away every time someone gets close to you. It's okay if Anna's just a client, but the minute she becomes someone you care about, you're in trouble. Me? Well, a quick fuck's just fine, but making an emotional attachment? That's out of the question. The only relationship you have is with your dog, and even that's some enormous state secret. Switch to Campbell. You are way out of line, Julia. Switch to Julia. No, actually, I'm probably the only one who's qualified to let you know exactly what a jerk you are. But that's okay, right? Because if everyone thinks you're a jerk, no one will bother getting too close. I stare at him a beat longer. It's disappointing to know that someone can see right through you, isn't it, Campbell? He gets up, stone-faced. I have a case to try. You do that, I say. Just make sure you separate justice from the client who needs it. Otherwise, God forbid, you may actually find out that you have a working heart. I walk off before I can embarrass myself any further and hear Campbell's voice reach out to me. Julia, it's not true. I close my eyes and against my better judgment, turn around. He hesitates. The dog, I... But whatever he is about to admit is interrupted by Vern's appearance in the doorway. Judge to sell those on the warpath, he interrupts. You're late, and the mini-mart was sold out of coffee milk. I meet Campbell's gaze. I wait for him to finish his sentence. You're my next witness, he says evenly, and the moment is gone before I can even remember it existed. Campbell. It's getting harder and harder to be a bastard. By the time I get into the courtroom, my hands are trembling. Part of it, of course, is the same old, same old. But part of it involves the fact that my client is about as responsive as a boulder beside me, and the woman I'm crazy about is the one I'm about to put on the witness stand. I glance once at Julia as the judge enters. She makes a point of looking away. Pause for a moment. I need to grab my bookmark. It fell on the floor. Somewhere on the floor. There it is. Epop. Got it. But just now. <clears throat> My pen rolls off the table. Anna, can you get that for me? Switch to Anna speaking. I don't know. I'd be wasting time and manpower, wouldn't I? She says, and the goddamn pen stays on the floor. Are you ready to call your next witness, Mr. Alexander? Judge DeSalo asks. But before I can even say Julia's name, Sarah Fitzgerald asks her asks to approach the bench. I gear up for yet another complication, and sure enough, opposing counsel doesn't disappoint. 
The psychiatrist that I've asked to call as a witness has an appointment at the hospital this afternoon. Would it be all right with the court if we took her testimony out of order? Mr. Alexander? Wait. Sarah stopped speaking. Judge DeSalvo. Mr. Alexander? And speaking. I shrug. It's just a stay of execution for me when you get right down to it. So I sit down beside Anna and watch a small, dark woman with a bun twisted ten degrees too tight for her face take the stand. Please state your name and address for the record, Sarah begins. Dr. Bita No. No? Nail? Eh. Okay, so it is no. There's a pronunciation joke. Dr. Bita No, the, the psychiatrist says. 1250 Auric Way, wound socket. Dr. No. I look around the courtroom, but apparently I'm the only James Bond fan. I take out a legal pad and write a note to Anna. If she married Dr. Chance, she'd be Dr. No Chance. A smile twitches at the corner of Anna's mouth. She picks up the pen that dropped and writes back. If she got a divorce and then married Mr. Buster, she'd be Dr. No Chance Buster. <laughs> That's so dumb. We both start to laugh, and Judge DeSalvo clears his throat and looks at us. Sorry, Your Honor, I say. Anna passes me another note. I'm still mad at you. Sarah walks toward her witness. Can you tell us, Doctor, the nature of your practice? I'm a child psychiatrist. How did you first meet my children? Dr. No look, glances at Anna. About seven years ago, you brought in your son, Jesse, because of some behavioral problems. Since then, I've met with all the children, over various occasions, to talk about different issues that have come up. Doctor, I called you last week and asked you to prepare a report giving your expert opinion about psychological harm Anna might suffer if her sister dies. Yes. In fact, I did a little research. There was a similar case in Maryland in which a girl was asked to be a donor for her twin. The psychiatrist who examined the twins found they had such a strong such a strong identification with each other that if the expected successful results were achieved, it would be of immense benefit to the donor. She looks at Anna. In my opinion, you're looking at a very similar set of circumstances here. Anna and Kate are very close, and not just genetically. They live together. They hang out together. They have literally spent their entire lives together. If Anna donates a kidney that saves her sister's life, it's a tremendous gift. And not just to Kate, because Anna herself will continue to be part of the intact family by which she defines herself, rather than a family that's lost one of its members. This is such a load of psych psychobabble bullshit, I can barely see the... I can barely see to swim through it, but to my shock, the judge seems to be taking this with great sincerity. Julia, too, has her head tilted in a tiny frown line between her brows. Am I the only person in the, in the room with a functioning brain? Moreover, Dr. No continues, there are several studies that indicate children who serve as donors have higher self-esteem and feel more important within the family structure. They consider themselves superheroes because they can do the one thing no one else can. That's the most off-mark description of Anna Fitzgerald I have ever heard. Do you think that Anna is capable of making her own medical decisions? Sarah asks. Absolutely not. Big surprise. 
Whatever decision she makes is going to have overtones for this entire family, Dr. No says. She's going to be thinking of that while, while making her decision, and therefore, it will never truly be independent. Plus, she's only 13 years old. Developmentally, her brain isn't wired yet to look that far ahead, so any decision will be made based on her immediate future, rather than the long term. Dr. No, the judge interrupts. What would you recommend in this case? Anna needs the guidance of someone with more life experience, someone who has her best interests in mind. I'm happy to work with the family, but the parents need to be the parents here, because the children can't be. When Sarah turns the witness over to me, I go in for the kill. You're asking us to believe that donating a kidney will net Anna all these fabulous psychological perks? That's correct, Dr. No says. Doesn't it stand to reason, then, that if she donates that same kidney and her sister dies as a result of the operation, then Anna will suffer significant psychological trauma? I believe her parents will help her reason through that. What about the fact that Anna's saying she doesn't want to be a donor anymore? I point out. Isn't that important? Absolutely. But like I said, Anna's current state of mind is driven by the short-term consequences. She doesn't understand how this decision is really going to play out. Who does? I ask. Mrs. Fitzgerald may not be 13, but she lives each day waiting for the other shoe to drop in terms of Kate's health, don't you think? Grudgingly, the psychiatrist nods. You might say she defines her own ability to be a good mother by keeping Kate healthy. In fact, if her actions keep Kate alive, she herself benefits psychologically. Of course. Mrs. Fitzgerald would be much better off in a family that included Kate. Why, I'd even go as far as to say that the choices she makes in her life are not at all independent, but rather colored by issues concerning Kate's health care. Probably. Then by your own reasoning, I finish, isn't it true that Sarah Fitzgerald looks feels, and acts like a donor for Kate? Well, except she's not offering her own bone marrow and blood. Just Anna's. Mr. Alexander, the judge warns, and if Sarah fits the psychological profile of a closely related donor personality who can't make independent decisions, then why is she any more capable of making this choice than Anna? From the corner of my eye, I can see Sarah's stunned face. I can hear the judge banging his gavel. You're right, Dr. No. Parents need to be parents, I say. But sometimes that isn't good enough. Okay, but damn. He just... Bah! What bah? I... As a character, Campbell has his moments... Of, oh, that's uncomfy to hear. And, ooh, yeah, get into it, white boy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no! No! No, that's a weird... That's... <laughs> I need a break. I need a break because I said that. Back from my break. Julia. Judge DeSalvo calls for a ten-minute break. I put down my knapsack, a Guatemalan weave and start washing my hands when the door to one of the bathroom stalls opens. Anna comes out, hesitating for just a moment. Then she turns on the tap beside me. Hey, I say. 
Anna goes to dry her hands under the blower. The air doesn't feed out, not reading the sensor of her palm for some reason. She waves her fingers beneath the machine again, then stares at them, as if trying to make sure that she's not invisible. She bangs on the metal. When I lean over and wave a hand beneath it, hot air breathes into my palm. We share this small warmth, hobos around a kettle-bellied fire. Campbell tells me you don't want to testify. I don't really want to talk about it, Anna says. Well, sometimes to get what you want the most, you have to do what you want the least. She leans against the bathroom wall and crosses her arms. Who died and made you Confucius? Anna turns away, then reaches down to pick up my knapsack for me. I like this. All the colors. I take it and slip it over my shoulder. I saw old women weaving them when I was in South America. It takes 20 spools of thread to make this pattern. Truth's like that, Anna says, or it's what I think she says, but by then she has left the room. I am watching Campbell's hands. They move around a lot while he is talking. He almost seems to use them to punctuate whatever he's saying, but they're trembling a little too, and I attribute this to the fact that he doesn't know what I'm going to say. As the guardian, guardian ad litem, he asks, what are your recommendations in this case? I take a deep breath and look at Anna. What I see here is a young woman who has spent her life feeling an enormous responsibility for her sister's well-being. In fact, she knows she was brought into this world to carry out that, to carry that responsibility. I glance at Sarah, sitting at her table. I think that this family, when they conceived Anna, had the best of intentions. They wanted to save their older daughter. They believed Anna would be a welcome addition to the family, not just because of what she would provide genetically, but also because they wanted to love her and watch her grow up well. Then I turn to Campbell. I also understand completely how in this family, it became critical to do anything that was humanly possible to save Kate. When you love someone, you'll do anything you can to keep them with you. She's no longer speaking. As a little girl, I used to wake up in the middle of the night remembering my wild dreams. I was flying. I was locked in a chocolate factory. I was queen of a Caribbean isle. I would wake with the small, with the smell of frangipani in my hair or clouds caught in the hem of my nightgown until I realized that I was somewhere different. And no matter how hard I tried, I might fall asleep again, but I could not will myself back into the fabric of that dream I'd been having. Once, during the night Campbell and I spent together, I woke up in his arms to find him still sleeping. I traced the geography of his face, from the cliff of his cheekbone to the whirlpool of his ear to the laugh lines ravened beside his mouth. Then I closed my eyes, and for the first time in my life fell right back into the dream, in the very spot where I'd left it. Unfortunately, I say to the court, there is also a point when you have to step back and say that it's time to let go. For a month after Campbell dumped me, I did not get out of bed except when forced to go to mass or to sit at the dinner table. I stopped washing my hair. Under my eyes were dark circles. Izzy and I, at first glance, looked completely different. On the day that I mustered the courage to get out of bed of my own volition, I went to Wheeler and trolled, out, trolled around the boathouse, carefully staying hidden until I found a boy on the sailing team, a summer session student, who was taking out one of the school's skiffs. He had blonde hair instead of Campbell's black. 
He was stocky, not tall and lean. I pretended I needed a ride, a ride home. Within an hour, I had fucked him in the back seat of his Honda. I did it because if there was someone else, then I wouldn't smell Campbell on my skin and taste him on the inside of my lips. I did it because I had been feeling so hollow inside that I feared floating away, like a helium balloon that rose so high you couldn't even see the faintest splash of color. I felt this boy whose name I couldn't be bothered to remember grunting and heaving inside me. I was that empty and that far away. And suddenly I knew what became of all those lost balloons. They were the loves that slipped out of our fists. The blank eyes that rose in every night sky. When I was first given this assignment two weeks ago, I tell the court, I tell the judge, and I started to look at the dynamics of this family, it seemed to me that medical emancipation was in Anna's best interests. But then I realized I was guilty of making judgments the way everyone else in this family does, based solely on physiological effects instead of psychological ones. The easy part of this decision is to figure out what's medically right for Anna. Bottom line, it is not in her best interest to donate organs and blood that has no medical benefit for Anna herself, but prolongs her sister's life. I see Campbell's eyes spark. This endor is endorsement has surprised him. It's harder to come up with a solution, though, because although it may not be in Anna's best interest to be a donor for her sister, her own family is incapable of making informed decisions about that. If Kate's illness is a runaway train, then everyone reacts from crisis to crisis without figuring out the best way to bring this into the station. And using the same analogy, her parents' pressure is a switch on the track. Anna isn't mentally or physically strong enough to guide her own decisions, knowing what their wishes are. Campbell's dog gets up and begins to whine. Distracted, I turn to the noise. Campbell pushes away Judge's snout, never taking his eyes off me. I see no one in the Fitzgerald family who can make unbiased decisions about Anna's health care, I admit. Not her parents, and not Anna herself. Judge DeSalvo frowns at me, frowns down at me. Then, Miss, Miss Romano, he asks, what's your recommendation to the court? Campbell. She's not going to veto the petition. That's my first incredible thought, that my case isn't going down in flames yet, even after Julia's testimony. My second thought is that Julia is as ripped up about this case and what it's done to Anna as I am, except she's put it out there on display for everyone to see. Judge has to chosen this moment to become a colossal pain in the ass. He sinks his teeth into my coat and starts tugging, but I'll be damned if I'm going to break before I hear Julia finish. Miss Romano, DeSalvo, DeSalvo asks, what's your recommendation to the court? I don't know, she says softly. I'm sorry. This is the first time I've ever served as a guardian ad litem and been unable to reach a recommendation, and I know that's not acceptable. But on one hand, I have Brian and Sarah Fitzgerald, who have done nothing but make choices throughout the course of both their daughters' lives out of love. Put that way, they certainly don't seem like the wrong decisions, even if they aren't the right decisions for both of those daughters anymore. She turns to Anna, and beside me I can feel her sit a little straighter, prouder. On the other hand, I have Anna, who after 13 years is standing up for herself, even though it may mean losing the sister she loves. Julia shakes her head. It's a Solomon's choice, Your Honor, but you're not, as but you're not asking me to split a baby in half. You're asking me to split a family. <clears throat> I 
When I feel a wh- when I feel a tug on my other arm, I start to slap the dog away again, but then realize that this time it's Anna. Okay, she whispers. Judge DeSaldo excuses Julia from the stand. Okay, what? I whisper back. Okay, I'll talk, Anna says. I stare at her in disbelief. Judge is whining now, and batting his nose against my thigh, but I can't risk a recess. All it will take for Anna to change her mind is a split second. You sure? But she doesn't answer me. She stands up, drawing all attention in the courtroom to herself. Judge DeSalvo? Anna takes a deep breath. I have something to say. Oh my god. Oh my god. So, the dog whining. The dog whining. It's escalating. It's escalating. I've been waiting for this moment. It's not a good moment, but holy shit! You'll know. You'll know. You'll know. You'll know. (laughs) Anna. Let me tell you about the first time I had to give an oral report in class. It was third grade, and I was in charge of talking about the kangaroo. They're pretty interesting, you know? I mean, not only are they found on Australia alone, like some kind of mutant evolutionary strain, they have the eyes of deer and the useless paws of a T-Rex. But the most fascinating thing about them is the pouch, of course. This baby, when it gets born, is like the size of a germ and manages to crawl under the flap and tuck itself inside, all while its clueless mother is bouncing around the outback. And that pouch isn't like they make it out on Saturday morning cartoons. It's pink and wrinkled like inside your lip, and full of important motherish plumbing. I'll bet you didn't know kangaroos don't carry one joey at a- don't just carry one joey at a time. Every now and then there will be a miniature sibling, tiny and jellied and stuck in the bottom while her older sister scrapes around with her enormous feet and makes herself comfortable. As you can see, I clearly knew my stuff, but when it was nearly my turn, just as Steven Steven Scarpino was holding up a papier-mâché model of a lemur, I knew I was going to be sick. I went up to Miss Cuthbert and told her if I stayed to do this assignment, no one was going to be happy. Anna, she said, if you tell yourself you feel fine, you will. So when Stephen finished, I got up. I took a deep breath. Kangaroos, I said, are marsupials that live only in Australia. Then I projectile vomited over four kids who had the bad luck to be sitting in the front row. For the whole rest of the year, I was called Kangaroo. Every now and then, some kid would go on a plane on vacation and I'd go to my cubby to find a barf bag pinned to the front of my fleece pullover, a makeshift marsupial pouch. I was the school's greatest embarrassment until Darren Hong went to capture the flag in gym and accidentally pulled down Oriana Bertheim's skirt. I'm telling you this to explain my general aversion to public speaking. But now, on the witness stand, there's even more to be worried about. It's not that I'm nervous, like Campbell thinks. I am not afraid of clamming up, either. I'm afraid of saying too much. I look out at the courtroom and see my mother, sitting at her lawyer table, and my father, who smiles at me just the tiniest bit, and suddenly I can't believe I ever thought I might be able to go through with this. I get to the edge of my seat, ready to apologize for wasting everyone's time and bolt, only to realize that Campbell looks positively awful. He's sweating, and his pupils are so big they look like quarters set deep in his face. Anna. Campbell Campbell asks, Do you want a glass of water? I look at him and think, Do you? What I want is to go home. 
I want to run away to a place where no one knows my name and pretend to be a millionaire's adopted daughter, the heir to a toothpaste manufacturing kingdom, a Japanese pop star. Campbell turns to the judge. May I confer for a moment with my client? Be my guest, Judge DeSaldo says. So Campbell walks up to the witness stand and leans so close that only I can hear him. When I was a kid, I had a friend named Joseph Balls. <laughs> Sorry that my laugh was probably so loud in your ears if you're wearing headphones. I'm sorry. <laughs> when I was a kid, I had a friend named Joseph Balls, he asks. Imagine if Dr. No had married him. He backs away while I am still smiling and thinking that maybe, just maybe, I can last for another two or three minutes up here. Campbell's dog is going crazy. He's the only one who needs water or something from the, look of, from the looks of it. And I'm not the only one to notice. Mr. Alexander, Judge DeSalvo says, please control your animal. No, Judge. Excuse me? Campbell goes tomato red. I was speaking to the dog, Your Honor, like you asked. Then he turns to me. Anna, why did you want to file this petition? A lie, as you probably know, has a taste all its own. Blocky and bitter and never quite right, like when you pop a piece of fancy chocolate into your mouth expecting toffee filling and you get lemon zest instead. She asked, I say, the first two words that will become an avalanche. Who asked what? My mom, I say, staring at Campbell's shoes. For a kidney. I look down at my skirt, pick out a thread, just maybe I will unravel the whole thing. About two months ago, Kate was diagnosed with kidney failure. She got tired easily and lost weight and retained water and threw up a lot. The blame was pinned to a bunch of different things. Genetic abnormalities, granulocyte macrophage, colony stimulating factor, growth hormone shots Kate had taken once, had once taken to boost marrow production, stress from other treatments. She was put on dialysis to get rid of the toxin zipping around her bloodstream. And then, the dialysis stopped working. One night, my mother came into our room when Kate and I were just hanging out. She had my father with her, which meant we were in for a more heavy discussion than who left the sink running by accident. I've been doing some reading on the internet, my mother said. Transplants of typical organs aren't nearly as difficult to recover from as bone marrow transplants. Kate looked at me and popped in a new CD. We both knew where this was headed. Sorry. You can't exactly pick up a kidney at Kmart. I know. It turns out that you only need to match a couple of HLA proteins to be a kidney donor. Not all six. I called Dr. Chance to ask if I might be a match for you, and he said in normal cases, I probably would. Kate hears the right word. Normal cases? Which you're not. Dr. Chance thinks he's thinks you'd reject an organ from the general donor pool, just because your body's already been through so much. My mother looked down at the carpet. He won't recommend the procedure unless the kidney comes from Anna. My father shook his head. That's invasive surgery, he said quietly, for both of them. I started thinking about this. Would I have to be in the hospital? Would it hurt? Could people live with just one kidney? What if I wound up with kidney failure failure when I was, like, 70? Where would I get my spare? Before I could ask any of this, Kate spoke. 
I'm not doing it again, alright? I'm sick of it. The hospitals and the chemo and the radiation and the whole freaking thing. Just leave me alone, will you? My mother's face went wide. Fine, Kate. Go ahead and commit suicide. She put her headphones on again, turned the music up so loud that I could hear it. It's not suicide, she said, if you're already dying. Did you ever tell anyone that you didn't want to be a donor? Campbell asks me, and his dog starts doing helicopters in the front of the courtroom. Mr. Alexander, Judge DeSaldo says, I'm going to call a bailiff if, to remove your pet. It's true. The dog is totally out of control. He's barking and leaping up with his front paws on Campbell and running in those tight circles. Campbell ignores both judges. Anna, did you decide to file this lawsuit all by yourself? I know why he's asking. He wants everyone to know I'm capable of making choices that are hard. And I even have my lie, quivering like the snake it is, caught between my teeth. But what I mean to say isn't quite what slips out. I was kind of convinced by someone. This is, of course, news to my parents, whose eyes hammer on to me. It's news to Julia, who actually makes a small sound. And it's news to Campbell, who runs a hand down his face in defeat. This is why it's better to this is exactly why it's better to stay silent. There's less of a chance of screwing up your life and everyone else's. Anna, Campbell says, who convinced you? I am small in this seat, in this state, on this lonely planet. I fold my hands together, holding between them the only emotion I've managed to keep from slipping away. Regret. Kate. The entire courtroom goes silent. Before I can say anything else, the lightning bolt I have been expecting strikes. I cringe, but it turns out that the crash isn't I've heard isn't the earth opening up to swallow me whole. It's Campbell, who's fallen to the floor, while his dog stands nearby with a very human look on his face that says, I told you so. Ah! Eva! It happened. It happened. The big reveal. Well, there was one big reveal, and then there's another big reveal happening. Oh my god. Brian. If you travel in space for three years and come back, 400 years will have passed on Earth. I am only an armchair astronomer, but I have the odd sense that I have returned from a journey to a world where nothing quite makes sense. I thought I had been listening to Jesse, but it turns out I haven't been listening to him at all. I have listened carefully, carefully to Anna, and yet it seems there is a piece missing. I try to work through the few things she has said, tracing them and trying to make sense of them the way the Greeks somehow found five points in the sky and decided it looked like a woman's body. Then it hits me. I am looking in the wrong place. The aboriginal people of Australia, for example, look between the constellations of the Greeks and the Romans into the black wash of sky and find an emu hiding a hiding under the Southern Cross where there, are no, where there are no stars. There are just as many stories to be told in the dark spots as there are in the bright ones. Or this is what I'm thinking, anyway, when my daughter's lawyer falls to the floor in the throes of an epileptic seizure. Airway, breathing, circulation. Airway, for someone having a grand mal seizure is the biggie. I jump over the gate of the gallery and have to fight the dog out of the way. He's come to stand over Campbell's twitching body like a sentry. The attorney enters the tonic phase with a cry, as air is forced out by the contraction of his breathing muscles. He lays rigid on the ground. 
Then the clonic phase starts, and his muscles fire randomly, repeatedly. I turn him on his side, in case he vomits, and start looking for someone to, for something to stick between his jaws so that he won't bite off his own tongue. When the most amazing thing happens, the dog knocks over Alexander's briefcase and pulls out something that looks like a rubber bone but is actually a bite block, and drops it into my hand. Distantly, I am aware of the judge sealing off the courtroom. I yell to Vern for an ambulance. Julia is at my side immediately. Is he alright? He's gonna be fine. It's just- it's a seizure. She looks like she's on the verge of tears. Can't you do something? Wait, I say. She reaches for Campbell, but I draw her hand away. I don't understand why it happened. I don't know if Campbell does, himself. I do know that there are some things, though, that occur without a direct lie of ant antecedents. Two thousand years ago, the night sky looked completely different, and so when you get right down to it, the Greek conceptions of star signs as related to birth dates are grossly inaccurate for today's day and age. It's called the line of procession, back when the sun didn't set in Taurus, but in Gemini. The September 24th birthday didn't mean you were a Libra, but a Virgo, and there was a 13th zodiac constellation, Ophiuchus the, the serpent bearer, who, which rose between Sagittarius and Scorpio for only four days. The reason it's all off-kilter? The Earth's axis wobbles. Life isn't nearly as stable as we want it to be. Campbell Alexander vomits on the courtroom, on the courtroom rug, then coughs his way to consciousness in the judges' chambers. Take it easy, I say, helping him sit. You had a bad one. He holds his head. What happened? Amnesia, on both sides of the event, is pretty common. Blacked out. Looked like a grand mal to me. He glances down at the IV line Caesar and I have placed. I don't need that. Like hell you don't, I say. If you don't take anti-seizure meds, you'll be back on that floor in no time. Relenting, he leans back against the couch and stares at the ceiling. How bad was it? Pretty bad, I admit. He pats Judge on the head. The dog's been inseparable. Good boy. Sorry I didn't listen. Then he looks down at his pants, wet and reeking, another common effect of a grand mal. Shit. Close enough, I hand. I hand him a, a spare pair from one of my uniforms, something I had the department bring along. You need help? He shakes me off and tries, one-handedly, to take off his trousers. Without a word, I reach over and undo the fly. Help him change. I do this without thinking, the way I'd lift up the shirt of a woman who needed CPR, but all the same, I know it's killing him. Thanks, he says, taking great care to zip up his own fly. We sit for a second. Does the judge know? When I don't answer, Campbell buries his face in his hands. Christ, right in front of everyone? Switch to Brian. How long have you hidden it? How long have you hidden it? Campbell. Since it started, I was 18. I got into a car crash, and they started up after that. Brian. Had trauma? He nods. That's what they said. I clasped my hands between my, between my knees. Anna was pretty freaked out. Campbell rubs his forehead. She was testifying. Yeah, I say. Yeah. He looks up at me. I have to get back in there. Not yet. At the sound of Julia's voice, we both turn. 
She stands in the doorway, staring at Campbell as if she has never seen him before, and I suppose in all fairness she hasn't. Not like this. I'll, uh, go see if the boys have filed the report yet, I murmur, and I leave them. Things don't always look as they seem. Some stars, for example, look like bright pinholes, but when you get them pegged under a microscope, you find you're looking at a globular cr cluster, a million stars that, to us, presents as a single entity. On a less dramatic note, there are triples, like Alpha Centauri, which up close turns out to be a double star and a red dwarf in close proximity. There's an indigenous tribe in Africa that tells of life coming from the second star in Alpha Centauri, the one no one can see without a high-powered observatory telescope. Come to think of it, the Greeks, the Aboriginals, and the, Plain and the Plains Indians all lived continents apart and all, independently, looked at the same septuplet knot of the Pleiades and believed them to be seven young girls running away from something that threatened to hurt them. Make of it what you will. Campbell the only thing comparable to the aftermath of a grand mal seizure is waking up on the pavement with a hangover from the mother of all frat parties and immediately being run over by a truck. On second thought, maybe a grand mal is worse. I am covered in my own filth, hooked up to medicine, and falling apart at the seams when Julia walks toward me. It's a seizure, dog, I say. No kidding. Julia holds out her hand for Judge to sniff. She points to the couch beside me. Can I sit down? It's not catching, if that's what you mean. It wasn't. Julia comes close enough that I can feel the heat from her shoulder, inches away from mine. Why don't you tell me, Campbell? Christ, Julia, I didn't even tell my parents. I try to look over her shoulder into the hallway. Where's Anna? How long has this been going on? I try to get up and manage to lift myself a half inch before my strength gives out. I have to get back in there. Campbell, I sigh. A while. A while as in a week? Shaking my head, I say, a while as in two days before we gra graduated from Wheeler. I look up at her. The day I took you home, all I wanted was to be with you. When my parents told me I had to go to that stupid dinner at the country club, I followed them in my own car so I could make a quick escape. I was planning on driving back to your house that night, but on the way to dinner, I got into a car accident. I came through with a few bruises, and that night, I had the first seizure. Thirty CT scans later, the doctors still couldn't really tell me why, but they made it pretty clear I'd have to live with, that, with it forever. I take a deep breath, which is what made me realize that no one else should have to. What? What do you want me to say, Julia? I wasn't good enough for you? You just... Wait, no, that wasn't a question. I wasn't good enough for you. You deserved better than some freak who might fall down frothing at the mouth any old minute. Julia goes perfectly still. You might have let me make up my own mind. What difference would it have made? Like you really would have gotten great satisfaction guarding me like Judge does when it happens, wiping up after me, living at the end of my life. I shake my head. You were so incredibly independent. A free spirit. I didn't want to be the one who took that away from you. Well, if I'd had, a ch had the choice, maybe I wouldn't have spent the past 15 years thinking there was something the matter with me. You? I start to laugh. Look at you. You're a knockout. You're smarter than I am. You're on a career track and you're family-centered and, fam and you probably even can balance your checkbook.
And I'm lonely, Campbell, Julia adds. Why do you think I had to learn to act so independent? I also get mad too quickly, and I hog the covers, and my second toe was longer than my big one. My hair has its own zip code. Plus, I get certifiably crazy when I've got PMS. You don't love someone because they're perfect, she says. You love them in spite of the fact that they're not. I don't know how to respond to that. It's like being told after 35 years that the sky, which I've seen as a brilliant blue, is in fact rather green. And another thing. This time, you don't get to leave me. I'm going to leave you. If possible, that only makes me feel worse. I try to pretend it doesn't hurt, but I don't have the energy. So go. Julia settles next to me. I will, she says. In another 50 or 60 years... Anna. I knock on the door of the men's room and then walk inside. On one wall is a really long, gross urinal. On the other, washing his hands in a sink, is Campbell. He's wearing a pair of my dad's uniform pants. He looks different now, as if all the straight lines that had been used to draw his face have been smudged. Julia said you wanted me to come in here, I say. Yeah, I wanted to talk to you alone, and all the conference rooms are upstairs. Your dad doesn't think I ought to tackle that just yet. He wipes his hands on a towel. I'm sorry about what happened. Well, I don't even know if there's a decent answer to that. I chew on my lower lip. Is that why I couldn't pat the dog? Yeah. How does Judge know what to do? Campbell shrugs. It's supposed to have something to do with scent or electrical impulses that an animal can sense before a human can. But I think it's because we know each other so well. He pats Judge on the neck. He gets me somewhere safe before it happens. I usually have about, about 20 minutes lead time. Huh. I am suddenly shy. I've been with Kate when she's really, really sick. But this is different. I hadn't been expecting this from Campbell. Is this why you took my case? So that I could have a seizure in public? Believe me. No. Not that. I look away from him. Because you know what it's like to not have any control over your body. Maybe, Campbell says thoughtfully, but my doorknobs did sorely need polishing. If he's trying to make me feel better, he's failing miserably. I told you having me testify wasn't the greatest idea. He puts his hands on my shoulders. Anna, come on. If I can go back in there after that performance, you sure as hell can climb into this hot sea for a few more questions. How am I supposed to fight that logic? So I follow Campbell back into the courtroom, where nothing is the way it was just an hour ago. With everyone watching him like he's a ticking time bomb, like he's a ticking bomb, Campbell walks up to the bench and turns to the court in general. I'm very sorry about that, Judge, he says. Anything for a ten-minute break, right? How could he make jokes about something like this? And then I realize, it's what Kate does, too. Maybe if God gives you a handicap, he makes sure you've got a few extra doses of humor to take the edge off. Why don't you take the rest of the day, counselor? Judge DeSalvo offers. No, I'm alright, and I think it's important that we get to the bottom of this. He turns to the court reporter. Could you, uh, refresh my memory? She reads back the transcript, and Campbell nods, but he, but he acts like he's hearing my words, regurgitated, for the very first time. All right, Anna, you were saying Kate asked you to file this lawsuit for medical emancipation? Again, I squirm. Not quite. Can you explain? She didn't ask me to file the lawsuit. 
Then what did she ask you? I steal a glance at my mother. She knows. She has to know. Don't make me say it out loud. Anna, Campbell presses. What did she ask you? I shake my head, tight-lipped, and Judge DeSalvo leans over. Anna, you're going to have to give us an answer to this question. Fine. The truth bursts out of me, a raging river, now that the dam's washed away. She asked me to kill her. The first thing that was wrong was that Kate had locked the door to our bedroom, but there wasn't really a lock, which meant she'd either pushed up furniture or pennied it shut. Kate, I yelled, banging, because I was sweaty and gross from hockey practice and I wanted to take a shower and change. Kate, this isn't fair. I guess I made enough noise, because she opened up, and that was the second thing. There was something just wrong about the room. I glanced around, but everything seemed to be in place. Most importantly, none of my stuff had been messed with, and yet Kate still looked like she'd swilled a, swilled a mystery. What's your problem? I asked, and then I went into the bathroom, turned on the shower, and smelled it. Sweet and almost angry, the same boozy scent I associated with Jessie's apartment. I started opening up cabinets and rummaging through towels and trying to find the proof, no pun intended, and sure enough, there was a half-empty bottle of whiskey hidden behind the boxes of tampons. Looky here, I said, brandishing it and walking back into the bedroom, thinking I had a great little wedge of blackmail to use to my advantage for a while, and then I saw Kate holding the pills. What are you doing? Kate rolled over. Leave me alone, Anna. Are you crazy? No, Kate said. I'm just sick of waiting for something that's going to happen anyway. I think I've fucked up everyone's life long enough, don't you? But everyone's worked, worked so hard to, just to keep you alive. You can't kill yourself. All of a sudden, Kate started to cry. I know. I can't. It took me a few moments to realize this meant she'd already tried before. My mother gets up slowly. It's not true, she says, her voice stretched thin as glass. Anna, I don't know why you'd say that. My eyes fill up. Why would I make it up? She walks closer. Maybe you misunderstood. Maybe she was just having a bad day or being dramatic. She smiles in the pained way of people who really want to cry. Because if she was that upset, she would have told me. She couldn't tell you. I reply. She was too afraid if she killed herself, she'd be killing you, too. I cannot catch my breath. I am sinking in a tar pit. I am running in the grounds gone beneath my feet. Campbell asks the judge for a few minutes so that I can pull myself together, but even if Judge DeSaldo answers, I am crying so hard I don't hear it. I don't want her to die, but I know she doesn't want to live like this, and I'm the one who can give her what she wants. I keep my eyes on my on my mother, even as she swims away from me. I've always been the one who can give her what she wants. The next time it came up was after my mother came into our room to talk about donating a kidney. Don't do it, Kate said when they were gone. I glanced at her. What are you talking about? I'm, of course I'm going to do it. We were getting undressed, and I noticed that we picked the same pajamas, shiny satin ones printed with cherries. As we slid into bed, I thought we looked like we did as little kids, when our parents would dress us similarly because they thought it was cute. Do you think it would work? I asked. A kidney transplant? Kate looked at me. It might. She leaned over. 
her hand on the light switch. Don't do it, she repeated, and it wasn't until I heard her a second time that I understood what she was really saying. My mother is a breath away from me, and in her eyes are all the mistakes she's ever made. My father comes up and puts his arm around her shoulders. Come sit down, he whispers into her hair. Your Honor, Campbell says, getting to his feet. May I? He walks toward me, judge right beside him. I am just as shaky as he is. I think about that dog an hour ago. How did he know for sure what Campbell really needed? And when? Anna, do you love your sister? Of course. But you were willing to take an action that might kill her? Something flashes inside me. It was so she wouldn't have to go through this anymore. I thought it was what she wanted. He goes silent, and I realize at that moment, he knows. Inside me, something breaks. It was... It was what I wanted, too. We were in the kitchen, washing and drying the dishes. You hate going to the hospital, Kate said. Well, duh. I put the forks and spoons, clean, back into the drawer. I know you'd do anything to not have to go there anymore. I glanced at her. Sure, because you'd be healthy. Or dead. Kate plunged her hands into the soapy water, careful not to look at me. Think about it, Anna. You could go to your hockey camps. You could choose a college in a whole different country. You could do anything you want and never have to worry about me. She pulled these examples right out of my head, and I could feel myself blushing, ashamed that they were even up there to be drawn out, in, out into the open. If Kate was feeling guilty about being a burden, then I was feeling twice as guilty for knowing she felt that way, for knowing I felt that way. We didn't talk after that. I dried whatever she handed me, and we both tried to pretend we didn't know the truth, that in addition to the piece of me that's always wanted Kate to live, there's another, horrible piece of me that sometimes wishes I were free. There. They understand. I am a monster. I started this lawsuit for some reasons I'm proud of and many I'm not, and now Campbell will see why I couldn't be a witness, not because I was scared to talk in front of everyone, but because of all these terrible feelings, some of which are too awful to speak out loud, that I want Kate alive, but I also want to be myself, not part of her, that I want the choice to grow up, even if Kate can't, that Kate's death would be the worst thing that's ever happened to me, and also the best. That sometimes, when I think about all this, I hate myself and just want to crawl back to where I was, to the person they want me to be. Now the whole courtroom is looking at me, and I'm sure that the witness stand or my skin or maybe both is about to implode. Under this magnifying glass, you can see right down to the rotten core at the heart of me. Maybe if they keep staring at me, I will go up in blue, bitter smoke. Maybe I will disappear without a trace. Anna, Campbell says quietly, what made you think that Kate wanted to die? She said she was ready. He walks up until he is standing right in front of me. Isn't it possible that's the same reason she asked you to help her? I look up slowly and unwrap this gift Campbell's just handed me. What if Kate wanted to die so that I could live? What if after all these years of saving Kate, she was only trying to do the same for me? Did you tell Kate you were going to stop being a donor? Yes, I whisper. When? The night before I hired you. Anna, what did Kate say? Until now, I hadn't really thought about it, but Campbell has triggered the memory. My sister had gotten very quiet, 
so quiet that I wondered if she'd fallen asleep. And then she turned to me without all, with all the world in her eyes and a smile that crumbled like a fault line. I glanced up at Campbell. She said, thanks. My soul is being ripped apart. Okay. Oh my lord. I need a break. I need to see when we're leaving. Because there's a play tonight that we're seeing. So I gotta... Oh my god, how long has this been going? I don't think it's been long. Um, oops. I would have continued to record this yesterday, but I had job. Well, you don't even know what days are for this recording. But, as the typical, I don't know what I was trying to say. As with the last episode, there we are. This has been, like, me recording this over a couple days. So it's not just one day, bang it out. It's been a couple days, and yesterday was Saturday. Today is Mother's Day. Which, I don't think mothers listen to this podcast, if I really think about it. So I'm not going to bother saying Happy Mother's Day. Which I always found weird when people said Happy Mother's Day to people who aren't their mother. You know? It's like you're supposed... It's like saying Happy Birthday to someone who's, like, not having their birthday. You know? Like, that's how it is to me. But some people see it differently. I don't know. I'm just going to continue. Sarah. It is Judge DeSaldo's idea to to take a field trip of sorts so that he can talk to Kate. When we all reach the hospital, she is sitting up in bed, absently staring at the TV set that Jesse flicks through with the remote. She is thin, her skin cast yellow, but she's conscious. The Tin Man... Jesse says, or the Scarecrow. Scarecrow would get the stuffing knocked out of him, Kate says. China from the WWF or the Crocodile Hunter? Jesse snorts. The Croc dude. Everyone knows the WWF is, a, is fake. He glances at her. Gandhi or Martin Luther King? They wouldn't, or Martin Luther King Jr. They wouldn't sign the waiver. We're talking celebrity boxing on Fox, babe. 
Jesse says. What makes you think they bother with a waiver? Kate grins. One of them would sit in the sit down in the ring, and the other wouldn't put his mouth guard in. This is the moment I walk inside. Hey, Mom, she says. Who'd win on hypothetical celebrity boxing? Marcia? 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 Or Jan Brandy? Brady. Jan Brady. She notices then that I am not alone. As the whole crowd dribbles into the room, her eyes widen, and she pulls the covers up higher. She looks bright at Anne, but her, Anna, but her sister refuses to meet her eye. What's going on? She spoke that. The judge steps forward, takes my arm. I want you to know, I want you to, I know you want to talk to her, Sarah, but I need to talk to her. He walks forward, extending his hand. Hi, Kate. I'm Judge DeSalvo. I was wondering if I could maybe speak to you for a few minutes alone, he adds, and one by one, everyone else leaves the room. I am the last to go. I watch Kate lean back against the pillows, suddenly exhausted again. I had a feeling you'd come, she tells the judge. Why? Because, Kate says, it always comes back to me. About five years ago, a new family bought the house across the street and knocked it down, wanting to rebuild something different. A single bulldozer and a half dozen waste bins were all in were all it took. In less than a morning, this structure, which we'd seen every time we walked outside, was reduced to a pile of rubble. You'd think a house could last forever, but the truth is a strong wind or a wrecking ball can devastate it. The family inside is not so different. Nowadays, I can hardly remember what that old house looked like. I walk out the front door and never recall the stretch of, month, stretch of months that the gaping lot stood out, conspicuous in its absence, like a lost tooth. It took some time, you know, but the new owners, they did rebuild. When Judge DeSaldo comes outside, grim and troubled, Campbell, and, Campbell, Brian, and I get to our feet. Tomorrow, he says, closings at, ni at 9 a.m. With a nod to Vern to follow, he walks down the hallway. Come on, Julia tells Campbell. You're at mercy you're at the mercy of my chaperonage. That's not a real world word word. But instead of following her, he walks toward me. Sarah, he says simply. I'm sorry. He gives me one more gift. You'll take Anna home? The minute they leave, Anna turns to me. I really need to see Kate. I slide an arm around her. Of course you can. We go inside, just our family, and Anna sits down on the edge of Kate's bed. Hey, Kate murmurs, her eyes opening. Anna shakes her head. It takes a moment for her to find the right words. I tried, she says finally, her voice catching like cotton on thorns as Kate squeezes her hand. Jessie sits down on the other side, the three of them in one spot. It makes me think of the Christmas card photo we would take each October, balancing them in height order in the wings of, ma of a maple tree or on a stone wall, one frozen moment for everyone to remember them by. Alf for Mr. Ed, Jessie says. The corners of Kate's mouth turn up. Horse, eighth round. You're on. Finally... Finally, Brian leans down, kisses Kate's forehead. 
Baby, you get a good night's sleep. As Anna and Jesse slip into the hall, he kisses me goodbye, too. Call me, he whispers. And then, when they are all gone, I sit down beside my daughter. Her arms are so thin I can see the bones shifting as she moves. Her eyes seem older than mine. I guess you have questions, Kate says. Maybe later, I answer, surprising myself. I climb up onto the bed and fold her into my embrace. I realize then that we never have children. We receive them. And sometimes it's not for quite, a, quite as long as we would have expected or hoped. But it is still far better than never having had those children at all. Kate, I confess, I'm so sorry. She pushes back from me until she can look me in the eyes. Don't be, she says fiercely. Because I'm not. She tries to smile. Try so damn hard. It was a good one, Mom, wasn't it? I bite my lip, feel the heaviness of tears. It was the best, I answer. Thursday. One fire burns out another's burning. One pain is lessened by another's anguish. William Shakespeare, Romeo and Juliet. Campbell. It's raining. When I come out to the living room, Judge has his nose pressed against the plate glass plate glass wall that makes up one whole side of the apartment. He whines at the drops that zigzag past him. You can't get them, I say, patting him on the head. You can't get to the other side. I sit down on the rug beside him, knowing I need to get up and get dressed and go to court, knowing that I ought to be reviewing my closing argument again and not sitting here idle, but there is something mesmerizing about this weather. I used to sit in the front seat of my father's of my father's jag, watching the raindrops run their kamikaze suicide missions from one edge of the windshield to the to the wiper blade. He liked to leave the wipers on intermittent so that the world so that the world went ru running on my side of the glass for the whole for whole blocks of time. It made me crazy. When you drive my father used to say when I complained, you can do what you want. You want the shower first? Julia stands in the open doorway of the bedroom, bedroom wearing one of my t-shirts. It hits her, her mid-thigh. Mid she curls her toes into the carpet. You go ahead, I tell her. I can always just step out of the, on, on the balcony instead. She notices the weather. Awful out, isn't it? Good day to be stuck in court, I answer, but without any great conviction. I don't want to face Judge Tisaldo's decision today, and for once it has nothing to do with fear of losing this case. I've done the best I could, given what Anna admitted on the stand, and I hope like hell that I've made her feel a little, be a little better about what she's done, too. She doesn't look like an indecisive kid anymore. That much is true. She doesn't look selfish. She just looks like the rest of us trying to figure out exactly who she is and what to make of it. The truth is, as Anna once told me, nobody's going to win. We are going to give out closing arguments and hear give our closing arguments and hear the judge's opinion and even then it won't be over. Instead of heading back to the bathroom, Julia approaches. She sits down cross-legged beside me and touches her fingers to the plate of glass. Campbell, she says, I don't know how to tell you this. Everything inside me goes still. Fast, I suggest. 
I hate your apartment. I followed her eyes from the gray carpet to the black couch, to the mirrored wall and the lacquered bookshelves. It is full of sharp edges and expensive art. It has to be the most advanced it has the most electro advanced electronic gas gadgets and bells and whistles. It is a dream ref- residence, but it is nobody's home. You know, I say, I hate it too. Jesse, it's raining. I go outside and start walking. I head down the street and past the elementary school and through two intersections. I am soaked to the bone in about five minutes flat. That's when I start to run. I run so fast that my lungs start to ache and my legs burn. And finally, when I cannot move another step, I fling myself down on my back in the middle of the high school soccer field. Once, I took acid here during a thunderstorm like this one. I lay down and watched the, and watched the sky fall. I imagined the raindrops melting away my skin. I waited for the one stroke of lightning that would arrow through my heart and make me feel 100% alive for the first time in my whole sorry existence. The lightning, it had its chance, and it didn't come that day. It doesn't come this morning, either. So I get up, wipe my hair out of my eyes, and try to come up with a better plan. Anna, it's raining. The kind of rain that comes down so heavy it sounds like the shower's running, even when you've turned it off. The kind of rain that makes you think of dams and flash floods, arcs. The kind of rain that tells you to crawl back into bed, where the sheets haven't lost your body heat, to pretend that the clock is five minutes earlier than it really is. Ask any kid who's made it past fourth grade, and they can tell you, water never stops moving. Rain falls, rain falls and runs down a mountain into a river. The river finds its way to the ocean. It evaporates, like a soul, into the clouds. And then, like everything else, it starts all over again. Brian, it's raining, like the day Anna was born, New Year's Eve, and way too warm for that time of year. What should have been snow became a torrential downpour. Ski slopes had to close for Christmas, because all their runs got washed out. Driving to the hospital, with Sarah in in labor beside me, I could barely see through the windshield. There were no stars that night, what with all the rain clouds, and clouds and maybe because of that when anna arrived i said to sarah let's name let's name her her andromeda anna for short andromeda she said like the sci-fi book like the princess i corrected i caught her eye on the tiny horizon over over our daughter's head in the sky i explained she's between her mother and father sarah it's raining Not an auspicious beginning, I think. I shuffle my index cards on the table, trying to look more skilled than I actually am. Who was I kidding? I am no lawyer, no professional. I have been nothing more than a mother, and I have not even done a square job of that. Mrs. Fitzgerald, the judge prompts. I take a deep breath, stare down at the gibberish in front of me, and grab the whole sheaf of index cards. Standing up, I clear my throat and start to read aloud. In this country, we have a long legal history of allowing parents to make decisions for their children. It's part of what the courts have always found to be the constitutional right to privacy. And given all the evidence this court has heard, suddenly there's a crash of lightning and I drop all my notes onto the floor. 
Kneeling, I scramble to pick up to pick them up, but of course now they are out of order. I try to rearrange what I have in front of me, but nothing makes sense. Oh hell no. Oh hell. It's not what I need to say anyway. Your honor, I ask. Can I start over? When he nods, I turn my back on him and walk toward my daughter, who was sitting beside Campbell. Anna, I tell her, I love you. I loved you before I ever saw you, and I will love you long after I'm not here to say it. And I know that because I'm your because I'm a parent, I'm supposed to have all the answers, but I don't. I wonder every single day if I'm doing the right thing. I wonder if I know my children the way I think I do. I wonder if I lose... If I lose my perspective in being your mother, because I'm so busy being Kate's. I take a few steps forward. I know I jump at every sliver sliver of possibility that might cure Kate, but it's all I know how to do. And even if you don't agree with me, even if Kate doesn't agree with me, I want to be the one I want to be the one who t- who says I told you so. Ten years from now, I want to see your children on your lap and in your arms. Because that's when you'll understand. I have a sister, so I know. That relationship, it's all about fairness. You want your siblings to have exactly what you have. The same amount of toys. The same number of meatballs on your spaghetti. The same share of love. But being a mother is completely different. You want your child to have more than you ever did. You want to build a fire underneath her and, and watch her soar. It's bigger than words. I touch my chest, and it still all manages to fit very neatly inside here. I turn to Judge DeSaldo. I didn't want to come to court, but I had to. The way the law works, if a petitioner takes action, even if that's your own child, you must have a reaction. And so I was forced to explain, eloquently, why I believe that I know better than Anna what is best for her. When you get down to it, though, explaining what you believe isn't all that easy. If you say that you believe something to be true, you might mean one of two things, that you are still weighing the alternatives, or that you accept it as fact. I don't logically see how one single word can have contradictory definitions, but emotionally, I completely understand, because there are times I think I... I think what I am doing is right, and there are other times I second-guess myself every step of the way. Even if the court found me in favor, t- found in my favor today, I couldn't force Anna to donate a kidney. No one could. But would I beg her? Would I want to, even if I restrained myself? I don't know. Not even after speaking to Kate, and after hearing from Anna. I'm not sure what to believe. I never was. I know, in dispute indisputably, only two things, that this lawsuit was never really about donating a kidney, but about having choices, and that nothing ever really ma- and that nobody ever really makes decisions entirely by themselves, not even if a judge gives them the right to do so. Finally, I face Campbell. A long time ago, I used to be a lawyer, but I'm not one anymore. I am a mother, and what I've done for the past 18 years is in that capacity is harder than anything I ever had to do in a courtroom. At the beginning of this hearing, Mr. Alexander, you said that none of us is obligated to go into a fire and save someone else from a burning building, but that all changes if you're a parent and the person in that burning building is your child. 
If that's the case, not only would everyone understand if you ran in to get your child, they'd practically expect it of you. I take a deep breath. In my life, though, that building was on fire. One of my children was in it, and the only opportunity to save her was to send in my other child, because she was the only one who knew the way. Did I know I was taking a risk? Of course. Did I realize it meant maybe losing both of them? Yes. Did I understand that maybe it wasn't fair to ask her to do it? Absolutely. But I also knew that it was the only chance I had to keep both of them. Was it legal? Was it moral? Was it crazy or foolish or cruel? I don't know. But I do know it was right. Finished, I sit down at my table. The rain beats against the windows to my right. I wonder if it will ever let up. Campbell. I get to my feet, look at my note cards, and, like Sarah, toss them into the trash. Like Mrs. Fitzgerald just said, this case isn't about Anna donating a kidney. It isn't about her donating a skin cell, a single blood cell, a rope of DNA. It's about a girl who was on the cusp of becoming someone, a girl who was 13, which is hard and painful and beautiful and difficult and exhilarating. A girl who may not know what she wants right now, and she may not know who she is right now, but who deserves the chance to find out. In ten years from now, in my opinion, I think she's going to be pretty amazing. I walk toward the bench. We know that the Fitzgeralds were asked to do the impossible, make informed health care decisions for two of their children, who had opposing medical interests. And if we... And if we, like the Fitzgeralds, don't know what the right decision is, then the person who has to have the final say is the person whose body it is, even if that's a 13-year-old. And ultimately, that too is what this case is about, the moment when perhaps a child knows better than her parents. I know that when Anna made the choice to file this lawsuit, she, didn't not, she did not do it for all the self-centered reasons you might expect of a 13-year-old. She didn't make this decision because she wanted to be like other kids her age. She didn't make this decision because she was tired of being poked and prodded. She didn't make this decision because she was afraid of the pain. I turn around and smile at her. You know what? I wouldn't be surprised if Anna gives her sister that kidney after all. But what I think but what I think doesn't matter. Judge Casaldo, with all due respect, what you think doesn't matter. What Sarah and Brian and Kate Fitzgerald think doesn't matter. What Anna thinks does. I walk back toward my chair, and that's the only voice we ought to be listening to. Judge Casaldo calls for a 15-minute recess to render his decision, and I use it to walk the dog. We circle the little square of green behind the Garrity building, with Vern keeping an eye on the reporters who are waiting for a verdict. Come on already, I say, as Judge makes his fourth loop around in search of the ultimate spot. No one's watching. But this turns out to not be entirely true. A kid, no older than three or four, breaks away from his mother and comes crashing toward us. Puppy! His, he yells. He stretches out his hands in hot pursuit, and Judge steps closer to me. His mother catches up a moment later. Sorry, my son's going through a canine stage. Can we pet him? No, I say automatically. He's a service dog. Oh, the woman straightens, pulls her son away. But you aren't blind. I'm epileptic, and this is my seizure dog. I think about coming clean. 
for once, for the first time. But then again, you have to be able to laugh at yourself, can't you? I'm a lawyer, I say, and I grin at her. He chases ambulances for me. As Judge and I walk off, I'm whistling. When Judge DeSaldo comes back to the bench, he brings a framed picture of his dead daughter, which is how I know that I've lost this, lost this case. One thing that has struck me through the presentation of the evidence, he begins, is that all of us in this courtroom have entered into a debate about the quality of life versus the sanctity of life. Certainly, the Fitzgeralds have always believed that having Kate alive and part of the family was, cru was crucial. But at this point, the sanctity of Kate's existence has become completely intertwined with the quality of Anna's life, and it's my job to see whether the, those two can be separated. He shakes his head. I'm not sure that any of us is qualified to decide which of, these, which of those two is the most important, least of all myself. I'm a father. My daughter Dina was killed when she was 12 years old by a drunk driver, and when I rushed to the hospital that night, I would have given anything for another day with her. The Fitzgeralds have had 14 years of being in that position, of being asked to, keep, to give anything to keep their daughter alive a little bit longer. I respect their decisions. I admire their courage. I envy the fact that they even had these opportunities. But as both attorneys have pointed out, this case is no longer about Anna and the kidney. It's about how the dis these decisions get made and how we decide who should make them. He clears his throat. The answer is that there is no good answer. So as parents, as doctors, as judges, and as a society, we fumble through and make decisions that allow us to sleep at night. Because morals are more important than ethics, and love is more important than law. Dutch DeSalvo turns his attention to Anna, who shifts uncomfortably. Kate doesn't want to die, he says gently, but she doesn't want to live like this either. And knowing that, and knowing the law, there's really only one decision I can make. The sole person who should be allowed to make that choice is the very one who lies at the heart of the issue. I exhale heavily. And by that, I don't mean Kate, but Anna. Beside me, she shucks in her breath, sucks in her breath. One of the issues brought up during these past few days has involved whether or not a 13-year-old is capable of making choices as weighty as these. I'd argue, though, that age is the least likely variable here for basic understanding. In fact, some of the adults here seem to have forgotten the simplest childhood rule. You don't take away take something away from someone without asking permission. Anna, he asks, will you please stand up? She looks at me, and I nod, standing up with her. At this time, Judge DeSalvo says, I'm going to declare you medically emancipated from your parents. What that means is that even though you will continue to live with them, and even though they can tell you when to go to bed and what TV shows you can't watch and whether you have you have to finish your broccoli. With regards to any medical treatment, you have the last word. He turns to Sarah. Mrs. Fitzgerald, Mr. Fitzgerald, I'm going to order you to meet with Anna and her pediatrician and discuss the terms of this verdict so that the doctor understands he needs to deal directly with Anna. And just so that she has additional guidance, should she need it, I'm going to ask Mr. Alexander to assume medical power of attorney for her until age 18, so that he may assist her in making some of the more difficult decisions. 
I'm not in any way suggesting that these decisions should not be made in conjunction with her parents, but I am finding that the final decision will rest with Anna alone. The judge pins his gaze on me. Mr. Alexander, will you accept this responsibility? With the exception of judge, I have never had to take care of anyone or anything before, and now I will have Julia, and I will have Anna. I'd be honored, I say, and I smile at her. I want those forms signed before you leave the courthouse today, the judge orders. Good luck, Anna. Stop by every now and then and let me know how you are. He bangs his gavel, and we rise as he leaves the courtroom. Anna, I say, when she remains still and shocked beside me. You did it. Julia reaches us first and leans over the gallery railing to hug Anna. You were very brave. Over Anna's shoulder, she grins at me. And so were you. But then Anna steps away and finds herself facing her parents. There is a foot between them and a universe of time and comfort. It isn't until that moment that I realize I have already begun I have begun already to think of Anna as older than her biological age. Yet here she is, unsure and unable to make eye contact. Hey, Brian says, bridging the gap and pulling his daughter into a rough embrace. It's okay. And then Sarah slips into the into this huddle, her arms coming around both of them, all their shoulders forming the wide wall of a team that has to reinvent the very game they play. <laughs> Anna. Visibility sucks. The rain, if possible, is coming down even harder. I have this brief vision of it pummeling the car so hard it crunches like an empty Coke can, and just like that is harder for me to breathe. It takes a second for me to realize that this has nothing to do with the shitty we weather or latent claustrophobia, but with the fact that my throat is only half as wide as usual, tears hardening it like an artery, so that everything I do and say involves twice as much work. I have been medically emancipated for a whole half hour now, Campbell says the rain is a blessing. It's kept the reporters away. Maybe they will find me at the hospital, and maybe they won't, but by then I will be with my family, and it won't really matter. My parents left before us. We had to fill out the stupid paperwork. Campbell offered to drop me off when we were through, which is nice considering I know he wants nothing more than to hook up with Julia, which they seem to think is some tremendous mystery, but so isn't. I wonder what Judge does when it's the two of them. I wonder if he feels left out. Campbell, I ask, out of nowhere. What do you think I should do? He doesn't pretend to not know what I'm to not know what I'm talking about. I just fought very hard at the trial for your right to choose, so I'm not going to tell you what I think. Great, I say, settling deep into my seat. I don't even know who I really am. I know who you are. You're the premier doorknob caddy in all of Providence Plantations. You've got a wise mouth, and you pick the crackers out of the Chex Mix, and you hate math, and it's kind of cool watching Campbell try to fill in all the blanks. You like boys? He finishes, but that one's a question. Some of them are okay, I admit, but they probably all grow up to be like you. He smiles. God forbid. What are you going to do now? What are you going to do next? Campbell shrugs. I may actually have to take on a paying case. 
So you can continue to support Julia in the style to which she's accustomed? Yeah, he laughs. Something like that. It gets quiet for a moment, so all I can hear is the squelch of the windshield wipers. I slip my hands under my thighs, sit on them. What you said at the trial. Do you really think I'll be amazing in ten years? Why, Anna Fitzgerald, are you fishing for compliments? Forget I said anything. He glances at me. Yes, I do. I imagine you'll be breaking guys' hearts or painting in Montmartre. In Montmartre. Probably the American way of saying it. Or flying fighter jets. Or hiking through undiscovered countries. He pauses. Maybe all of the above. There was a time when, like Kate, I'd wanted to be a ballerina. But since then, I've gone through a thousand different stages. I wanted to be an astronaut. I wanted to be a paleontologist. I wanted to be a backup singer for Aretha Franklin. A member of the cabinet. A Yellowstone National Park Ranger. Now, based on the day, I sometimes want to be a microsurgeon, a poet, a ghost hunter. Only one thing's a constant. A constant. Ten years from now, I say, I'd like to be Kate's sister. Brian. My beeper goes off just as Kate starts another course of dialysis. An MVA. Two cars. With PI. A motor vehicle accident with injuries. They need me, I tell Sarah. You'll be okay? The ambulance is headed to the corner of Eddie and Fountain, a bad intersection to begin with, rendered worse by this weather. By the time I arrive, the cops have blocked off the area. It's a T-bone. The two vehicles ramp together by sheer force into a conglomerate of twisted steel. The truck made out better. The smaller BMW is literally bent like a smile around its front end. I get out of the car and into the pouring rain. And find the first policeman I can. Three injured, he says. One's already en route. I find Red working the jaws of life, trying to cut through the driver's side of the second car to get the victims. What have you got? I shout over the sirens. First driver went through the windshield, he yells back. Caesar took her in the ambulance. The second ambulance is on its way. There are two people in here, but from what I can see, both doors are accordions. Let me see if I can crawl over the top of the truck. I start to work my way up the slick metal and shattered glass. My foot goes through a hole I couldn't see in the flatbed, but and I curse and try to get myself untangled. With careful movements, I pull myself into the pleated cab of the truck, maneuver myself forward. The driver must have flown out the windshield over the height of the, of the little BMW. W. The entire front end of the Ford 150 is plowed through the sports car's passenger side, as if it were made of paper. I have to crawl out what was the window of the truck, because the engine is between me and whoever's inside the BMW. But if I twist myself a certain way, there's a tiny space where I can nearly fit my fit myself, one that puts me in a, up against the tempered glass, spiderweb shattered, stained red with blood, and just a Judge forces the driver's side window door free with the jaws of life, and a dog comes whimpering out. I realize that the face pressed up against the other side of the broken window is Anna's. Get them out, I yell. Get them out now. I do not know how I force myself back out of this snarled skeleton to knock Red out of the way. How I unhook Camp Campbell Alexander from his seatbelt and drag him to lay in the street with the rain pelting around him. 
how I reach inside to where my daughter is still and wide-eyed, strapped into her strapped into her belt the way she is supposed to be, and Jesus God, no. I'm almost crying. This hurt the first time I read it, okay? Don't judge me. Don't judge me. <laughs> Polly comes out of nowhere and lays his hands on her, and before I know what I'm doing, I deck him, sending him sprawling. Fuck, Brian, he says, holding his jaw. It's Anna. Polly, it's Anna. When they understand, they try to hold me back and do this work for me. But it is my baby. My baby. And I am having none of it. Oh my god. This hurts. This hurts me. I've read this before. I knew it was coming. I knew it was gonna happen. Uh <laughs> Damn it, now I hear a dog outside. My sister's gonna come judge me. Fuck. I knew it! I knew it! She's I'm sorry, but- I didn't even hear what you said. I just want to eat. Oh. I thought you were here to judge me. I'm recording right now. Bella. Mmm, Gendas. I thought you were coming here Gendas. to judge me. Don't blow out my fucking candle, you whore. You fucking homophobe. Knock it off! I'm not even close enough to it. You're making it flicker and it's weird. Don't do that to me. You want to start- Because you blew it, you clown ass bitch! I'm not even doing anything to it. It's going- It's traumatized. It's going through it. No, get out! I want to cry in peace. This book is hurting me, Jack. Blink. I'm hungry. Cry about it. I will. I get her onto a backboard and strap her down. Let them load her onto the ambulance. I tip back the bottom of her chin, ready to intubate. But see the little scar she got from falling on Jessie's ice skate and fall apart. Red moves me aside and does it instead, then takes her pulse. It's weak, Cap, he says, but it's there. He puts in an IV line while I pick up the radio and call in our ETA. 13-year-old female, MVA, severe closed head injury. When the, car when the cardiac monitor blanks out, I drop the receiver and start C CPR. Get the paddles, I order, and I pull... Pull open Anna's shirt. Cut through the lace of her bra she wanted so badly but doesn't need. Red shocks her and gets the pulse back. Bradycardiac with ventricular escape beats. We bag her and put in an IV. Polly screams into the loading zone for ambulances and throws open the back doors. On the trailer, Anna is immobile. Red grabs my arm. Hard. Don't think about it, he says. And he takes the head of Anna's stretcher and pushes her into the ER. They will not let me into the trauma room. A flock of firefighters dribble in for support. One of them goes up to get Sarah, who arrives frantic. Where is she? What happened? A car accident, I manage. I didn't know who it was until I got there. My eyes fill up. Do I tell her that she is not breathing independently? Do I tell her that the EKG flatlined? Do I tell her that I have spent the past few minutes questioning every single thing I did on that call? 
The way I crawled over the truck to the moment I pulled her from the wreckage, certain that my emotion compromised certain that my emotion compromised what should have, what should have been done, what could have been done. At that moment I hear Campbell Alexander and the sound of something being thrown against a wall. God damn it, he says. Just tell me whether or not she was brought here. He pulls he bursts out the doorway of another trauma room, his arm in a cast, his clothes bloody. The dog, limping limping, is at his side. Immediately, Campbell's eyes hone in on mine. Where's Anna? he asks. I don't answer, because what the hell can I say? And that's all it takes for him to understand. Oh, Jesus. Oh, God. No. The doctor comes out of Anna's room. He knows me. I am here four nights a week. Brian, he says soberly. She's not responding to noxious stimuli. The sound that comes out of me is primal, inhuman, all-knowing. What does that mean? Sarah's words peck at me. What is he saying, Brian? Anna's head hit the window with great force, Mrs. Fitzgerald. It caused a fatal head injury. A respirator is keeping her breathing right now, but she's not showing any indications of neurological activity. She's brain dead. I'm sorry, the doctor says. I really am. He hesitates. Looks from me to Sarah. I know it's not something you even want to think about right now, but there's a very small window. Is organ donation something you'd like to consider? There are stars in the night sky that look brighter than the others, and when you look at them through a telescope, you realize you are looking at twins. The two stars rotate around each other, sometimes taking nearly a hundred years to do it. They create so much gravitational pull, there's no room around for anything else. You might see a blue star, for example, and realize only later that it has a white dwarf as a companion. The that first one shines so bright, by the time you notice the second one, it's really too late. Campbell is the, on is the one who actually answers the doctor. I have power of attorney for Anna, he explains. Not her parents. He looks from me to Sarah. And there's a girl upstairs who needs that kidney. Sarah. In the English language, there are orphans and widows, but there is no word for the parent who loses a child. They bring her back down to us after the donated organs are removed. I'm the last to go in. In the hallway, already, are Jesse and Zan and Campbell and some of the nurses we've grown close to, and even Julia Romano, the people who needed to say goodbye. Brian and I walk inside, where Anna lies tiny and still on the hospital bed. A tube feeds down her throat. A machine breathes for her. It is up to us to turn it off. I sit it. I sit down at the edge of the bed and pick up Anna's hand, still warm to the touch, still soft inside mine. It turns out that after all these years spent, I have spent anticipating a moment like this, I am completely at a loss, like coloring the sky in with a crayon. There is no language for grief this big. I can't do this, I whisper. Brian comes up behind me. Sweetheart, she's not here. The breathing machine keeping her body alive. It's the breathing machine keeping her body alive. What makes Anna, Anna is already gone. I turn, bury my face against his chest. But she wasn't supposed to, I sob. We hold each other, then, and when I feel brave enough, I look back down at the husk that once held my youngest. He is right, after all. There, this is nothing but a shell. There is no energy to the lines of, 
of her face. There's a slack absence to her muscles under this skin that they have stripped her of organs that will go to Kate and to other nameless second chance people. Okay. I take a deep breath. I put my hand on Anna's chest as Brian, trembling, flips off the respirator. I rub her skin in small circles, as if this might make it easier. When the monitors flatline, I wait to see some change in her, and then I feel it, as her heart stops beating beneath my palm, that tiny loss of rhythm, that hollow calm, that other, utter loss. Oh my god, I need to wipe my face, what the fuck? How dare they do this to me a second time? I knew it was gonna happen, but I didn't expect it to hurt this much, okay? <laughs> Epilogue. When along the pavement, palpitating flames of life, people flicker, flicker round me. I forget my bereavement, the gap in the great constellation, the place where a star used to be. D.H. Lawrence. Submergence. Kate, 2010. There should be a statute of limitation on grief. A rule book that says it is all right to wake up crying, but only for a month. That after 42 days, you will no longer turn with your heart racing. Certain you have heard her call out your name. That there will be no fine imposed if you feel the need to clean out her desk. Take down her artwork from the refrigerator. Turn over a school portrait as you pass. If only because it cuts you fresh again to see it. That it is okay to measure the time she has been gone, the way we once measured her birthdays. For a long time afterward, my father claimed to see Anna in the night sky. Sometimes it was with the wink it was in the wink of an it was the wink of her eye, sometimes the shape of her profile. He insisted that stars were people who were so well loved they were traced in constellation to live forever. My mother believed for a long time that Anna would come back to her. She began to look for signs, plants that bloomed too early, eggs with double yolks, salt spilled in the shape of letters. And me, well, I began to hate myself. It was, of course, all my fault. If Anna had never filed that lawsuit, if she hadn't been at the courthouse signing papers with her attorney, she never would have been at that particular intersection at that particular moment. She would be here, and I would be the one coming back to haunt her. For a long time, I was sick. The transplant nearly failed, and then, inexplicably, I began the long, steep upward, steep climb upward. It has been eight years since my last relapse, something not even Dr. Chance can understand. He thinks of it as a combination of the atra and the arsenic therapy, some contributing delayed effect. But I know better. It is that someone had to go, and Anna took my place. Grief is a curious thing when it happens unexpectedly. It is a band-aid being ripped away, taking the top layer off a family, and the underbelly of a household is never pretty, ours no exception. There were times I stayed in my room for days on end with headphones on, if only so that I would not have to listen to my mother cry. There were the weeks that my father worked round-the-clock shifts so that he wouldn't have to come home to a house that felt too big for us. Then one morning, my mother realized that we had eaten everything in the house, down to the last shrunken raisin and graham cracker crumb, and she went to the grocery store. My father paid a bill or two. I sat down to watch TV and watched an old I Love Lucy and started to laugh. Immediately, I felt like I had defiled her shrine. I clapped my hand over my mouth, embarrassed. 
It was Jessie, sitting beside me on the couch, who said, Oh my god, stop. No. I need a break. I need a break. I am back and determined to finish this recording. I can do this. Oh boy. See, as much as you want to hold on to the bitter sore memory that someone has left this world, you are still in it. And the very act of living is a tide. At first it seems to make no difference at all. And then one day you look down and see how much pain has, er has eroded. <clears throat> I wonder how much she keeps tabs on us. If she knows that for a long time, we were close to Campbell and Julia, even went to their wedding. If she understands that the reason we don't see them anymore is because it just plain hurt too much. Because even when we didn't talk about Anna, she lingered in the spaces between the words, like the smell of something burning. I wonder if she was at Jesse's graduation from the police academy, and she knows that he won a citation from the mayor last year for his role in a drug bust. I wonder if she knew that Dad fell deep into a bottle after she left and had to claw his way out. I wonder if she knows that, now, I teach children how to dance, that every time I see two little girls at the bar sinking into plies, I think of us. She still takes me by surprise. Like nearly a year after her death, when my mother came home with a roll of film she'd just developed of my high school graduation, we sat down at the kitchen table together, shoulder to shoulder, trying not to mention us we looked at all our double-wide grins that there was someone missing from the photo. And then, as if we'd conjured her, the last picture was of Anna. It had been that long since we'd used the camera plain and simple. She was on a beach towel, holding out one hand toward the photographer, trying to get whoever it was to stop taking her picture. My mother and I sat at the kitchen table staring at Anna until the sun was until the sunset, until we had memorized everything from the color of her ponytail holder to the pattern of fringe on her bikini, until we couldn't be sure we were seeing her clearly anymore. My mother let me have that picture of Anna, but I didn't frame it. I put it into an envelope and sealed it and stuffed it far back into a corner drawer of a filing cabinet. It's there, just in case one of these days I start to lose her. There might be a morning when I wake up and her face isn't the first thing I see, or a lazy August afternoon when I can't quite recall anymore where the freckles were on her right shoulder. Maybe one of these days, I will not be able to listen to the sound of snow falling and hear her, hear her footsteps. When I start to feel this way, I go into the bathroom and I lift up my shirt and touch the white lines of my scar. I remember how, at first, I thought the stitches seemed to spell out her name. I think about her kidney working inside me and her blood running through my veins. I take her with me, wherever I go. Oh my god. So, there's, this is a reader's club guide, so like, book club with, like, Q&A stuff. So, Conversation with jo Jody Picoult, which I'm gonna read to wash away the sad that just happened, because that hurt a lot. <sighs> Question. Your novels are incredibly relevant because they deal with topics that are a part of the national dialogue. Stem cell research and designer babies are issues that the medical community and the political community seems to be torn about. Why did you choose this subject for My Sister's Keeper? Did writing this novel change any of your views in this area? Answer. 
I came across the idea for this novel through the back door of a previous one, Second Glance. While researching eugenics for that book, I learned that the American Eugenics Society, the one whose funding dried up in the 1930s when the Nazis began to explore racial hygiene too, used to be housed in Cold Spring Harbor, New York. Guess who occupies the same space today? The Human Genome Project, which many consider today's eugenics. This was just too much of a coincidence for me, and I started to consider the way this massive, cutting-edge science we're on the brink of exploding into was similar to, and different from, the eugenics programs and sterilization laws in America in the 1930s. Once again, you've got science that is only as ethical as the people who are researching and implementing it. And once again, in the wake of such intense scientific ad advancement, what's falling by the wayside are the emotions involved in the case-by-case -case scenarios. I heard about a couple in America that successfully conceived a sibling that was a bone marrow match for his older sister, a girl suffering from a rare form of leukemia. His cord blood cells were given to the sister, who was still, several years later, in remission. But I started to wonder... What if she ever, sadly, goes out of her mission? Will the boy feel responsible? Will he wonder if the only reason he was born was because his sister was sick? When I started to look more deeply at the family dynamics and how stem cell research might cause an, an impact, I came up with the story of the Fitzgeralds. I personally am pro-stem cell research. There's too much good in it can do to simply dismiss it. However, clearly, it's a slippery slope. And sometimes researchers and political candidates get so bogged down in the ethics behind it and the details of the science that they forget completely we're talking about humans with feelings and emotions and hopes and fears, like Anna and her family. I believe that we're all going to be forced to think about these issues within a few years, so why not first in fiction? Okay, so I'm just going to see when this was published so that I can make a bit more sense time-wise. Where does it say... Also by copyright 2004. So this was a book published in 2004. So that helps with like timeline stuff and all that to get where everything comes into play and like research and stuff so that, you know. Question. In Jesse, you've done an amazing job of bringing the voice of the angry young man alive with irreverent originality. Your ability to transcend gender lines in your writing is seemingly effortless. <clears throat> is this actually the case, or is writing from a male perspective a, perspective a difficult thing for you to do? Answer. I have to tell you, writing Jesse is the most fun I've had in a long time. Maybe at heart I've always been the... I've always wanted to be a 17-year-old juvenile delinquent, but for whatever reason, it was just an absolute lark to take someone with so much anger and hurt inside him and give him a voice. It's always more fun to pretend to be someone you aren't, for whatever reason, whether that means male, or 13, or neurotic, or suicidal, or any of a dozen other first-person narrators I've created. Whenever I try on a male voice like Jesse's or Campbell's or Brian's, it feels like slipping into a big overcoat. It's comfortable there, and easy to get accustomed to wearing, but if I'm not careful, I'll slip and show what I've got on underneath. Question. On page 190, Jesse observes, while reminiscing on his planned attempt to dig to China, that darkness, you know, is relative. What does this sentiment mean, and why did you choose to express it through Jesse, who in some ways is one of the most, the least reflective characters in the novel? Answer. Well, that's exactly why it has to be Jesse who says it. To Jesse, 
Whatever injustices he thinks he suffered growing up will always pale to the great injustice of his sister being sick. He can't win, plain and simple, so he doesn't bother to try. When you read Jesse, you think you see exactly what you're getting, a kid who's gone rotten to the core. But I'd argue that in his case, you're dealing with an onion, someone whose reality is several layers away from what's on the surface. The question isn't whether Jesse's bad, it's what made him that way in the first place, and whether that's really who he is, or just a facade he, use, he uses to protect a softer self from greater disappointment. Question. How did you choose which quotes would go at the beginning of each section? Milton, Shakespeare, D.H. Lawrence. Are these some of your favorite authors, or did you have reasons for choosing them? Answer. I suppose I could say that all I have ever read are the masters, and that these quotes just popped out of my memory. But I'd be lying. The bits I used at the beginning of the sections are ones that I searched for, diligently. I was looking for allusions to fire, flashes, stars, all imagery that might connect a family that is figuratively burning itself out. Oh, that's actually, like, really cool. That's so cool. I didn't read this on my first read because I thought it was sort of pointless. <clears throat> So, getting to learn that's why the quotes were picked and the symbolism. Because I wasn't looking too deep in the quotes. I thought they were just there, because why not? Question. Sisterhood, and siblinghood for that matter, is a central concept in this work. Why did you make Isabel and Julia twins? Does this plot point somehow correspond with the codependence between Kate and Anna? What did you hope to reveal about sisterhood through this story? Answer. I think there is a relationship between sisters that is unlike other sibling bonds. It's a combination of competition and fierce loyalty, which is certainly evident in both sets of sisters in this book. The reason Izzy and Julia are twins is because they started out as one embryo before splitting into utero, before splitting in utero, and as they grew, their differences became more pronounced. Kate and Anna, too, have genetic connections. But unlike Izzy and Julia, they aren't able to separate from each other to grow into distinct individuals. I wanted to hold up both examples to the reader, so that they could see the difference between two sisters who started out as one and diverged, and two sisters who started out distinct from each other and somehow became inextricably entangled. Question. Anyone who has watched a loved one die and anyone with a heart in their chest, would be moved by the heartfelt, realistic, and moving depiction of sickness and death that is presented in this story. Was it difficult to imagine that scenario? How did you generate the realistic details? Answer. It's always hard to imagine a scenario where... Scenario? Where the fuck am I? Where the fuck am I? Where am I? There I am! Woo! It's always hard to- wait, why am I start- you know what, I'm just gonna start that over. That's easier. It's- <laughs> It's always hard to imagine a scenario where a family is dealing with intense grief, because naturally you can't help but think of your own family going through that sort of hell. When researching the book, I spoke to children who had cancer, as well as their parents, to better capture what it felt like to live day by day and maintain a positive attitude in spite of the overwhelming specter of what might be just around the corner. To a lesser extent, I also drew on my own experience, as a parent with a child who faced a series of surgeries. When my middle son, Jake, was five, he was diagnosed with bilateral col colostia 
cholesteatomas in his ears, benign tumors that will eventually burrow into your brain and kill you if you don't manage to catch them. He had ten surgeries in three years, and he's tumor-free now. Clearly, I wasn't facing the same urgent fears that the mom of a cancer patient faces, but it's not hard to remember how trying these hospi those hospitalizations were. Every single time I walked beside his gurney into the OR, where I would stay with him while he was anesthetized, I'd think, okay, just take my ear. If that keeps him from going through this again. That utter desperation and desire to make him healthy again became the heart of Sarah's monologues, and is the reason that I cannot hate her for making the decisions she did. Question. Sarah is a complicated character, and readers will probably both criticize her and empathize with her. How do you see her role in the story? Answer. Like Nina Frost in Perfect Match, Sarah's going to generate a bit of controversy, I think. And yet, I adore Nina, and I really admire Sarah, too. I think that she's the easy culprit to the easy culprit to blame in this nightmare, and yet, I would caution the reader not to rush to judgment. As Sarah says at the end of the book, it was never a case of choosing one child over the other. It was a case of wanting both. I don't think she meant for Anna to be at the mercy of her sister. I think she was intent on doing what she, what had to be done only to keep that family intact. Now, that said, I don't think she's a perfect mom. She lets Jessie down, although she certainly focused on was focused on more pressing emergencies, it's hard for me to imagine giving up so completely on a child, no matter what. And she's so busy fixating on Kate's shaky future that she loses sight of her family in the here and now. An oversight, of course, that she will wind up regretting forever at the end of the book. Question. The point of view of young people is, in, is integral in your books. In fact, more wisdom, humor, and compassion often come from them than anywhere else. What do you think adults could stand to learn from children? What is it about children that allows them to get to the truth of things so easily? Answer. Kids are the consummate radar devices for screening lies. They instinctively know when someone isn't being honest or truthful. And one of the really hard parts about growing up is learning the value of a white lie. For them, it's artifice that has to be acquired. Remember how upset Holden Caulfield got at all the, po all the phonies? Anna sees things the way they are because mentally she's still a child. She's still a kid, in spite of the fact that she's pretty much lost her childhood. The remarkable thing about adolescence, though, that keeps me coming back to them in fiction is that even when they're on the brink of realizing that growing up means compromising and letting go of those ideals, they still hold fast to hope. They may not want to admit it, to admit to it, witness Jesse, but they've got it tucked into their into their back pockets, just in case. It's why teens make such great and complicated narrators. Question. The ending of My Sister's Keeper is surprising and terribly sad. Without giving too much away, can you share why you cho chose choose to, to end the novel this way? Was it your plan from the beginning, or did you develop this later on, as you were writing? Answer. Let me tell you a story. My Sister's Keeper is the first book one of my own kids has read. Kyle, who's 12, picked it up and immediately got engrossed in it. The day he finished the book, I found him weeping on the couch. He pushed me away and went up to his room and told me that he really didn't want to see me or talk to me for a while. He was that upset. Eventually, when we did sit down to discuss it, he kept asking, Why? Why did it have to end like that? The answer I gave him, 
and you, is this. Because this isn't an easy book, and you know from the first page that there are no an easy answers. Medically, this ending was a realistic scenario for the family. And thematically, it was the only way to hammer home to all the characters what's truly important in life. Do I wish it could have, ha could have had a happy ending? You bet. I even gave a 23rd hour call to it to to an oncology nurse to ask if there was some other way to end the book. But finally, I came to see that if I wanted to be true to the story, this was the right conclusion. Question. All of your books to date have garnered wonderful press. In what ways, if any, does this change your writing experience? Answer. Um, are you reading the same reviews that I am? I'm kidding. Well, a little. I've had overwhelmingly good reviews, but I think the bad reviews always stick with you longer because they sting so much. No matter how many times I tell myself I'm going to ignore them, I read them anyway. I am fortunate to write commercially marketed books that still manage to get review coverage. Too often in this industry, books are divided by what's reviewed in literary and, or what's advertised in commercial. It's incredibly fun to have a starred review in a magazine. Photographers come out and take fancy pictures of you, and people are forever seeing your face and a description of your novel when they hang out in doctors' and dentists' waiting rooms. But the best thing about good press is that it makes people who might not otherwise have a clue who you are want to go and pick up your book. I never write a book thinking of reviewers. In fact, if I did, I'd probably just hide under my desk and never type another letter. But I certainly think about whether it ho will hold the interest of a reader as well as it's holding my own. So, then after that, there's, like, topics for discussion, but I doubt anyone's going to use this recording as, like, a basis for, you know, a freaking book club. <laughs> so, we finally finished the book, and I cried a little. Okay? I... <laughs> You can't judge me for that, Chief. It it hurt. It was painful, okay? Like, like I knew it was gonna happen. But shit. It hurt, man. It hurt me. The book hurt me. But I'll be okay. I shall live on. So thanks for listening to this. I know it was long these past episodes, and I honestly don't know if the next episodes will be that way too, because I haven't seen how long this book is. I think it's like, hang on, you know, I'm gonna check. I'm gonna check. Okay, three seventy four, and then there's the afterward. So it's like three hundred ninety pages. Well, 391 if you count the acknowledges, but the page 390 isn't, like, long, long. It's, like, top quarter. So, I'm going to just say 390 and divide that by four, because one episode per week, all that. Yeah, this is the right section. Is 390 even divisible by four? Guess we'll find out. 97.5. So round that up to 98. Wait, that can't be right. 300, 390 divided by 4. 97 points. How is that right? What? The other book 
was longer. Was last month longer? Were there five Saturdays in April? Have there been five episodes of this book? I can't remember. Frick. One, one, two, three, four. Okay, okay, okay. So the episodes will be longer? Yeah, they will. Because we have less time next month and the month after that. And then July is another five-week month. So, yeah, the episodes will be longer. Because we have more to get through quicker. And I have a job now. So the episodes, the way I'll record them, aside from the first episode, because it's already going to be late, I'll probably, like, you won't even understand the concept, but each day I'll record a little, and then I'll post on Saturday. Like a vlogger. <laughs> <laughs> like a vlogger, I say. So... Yeah, that's probably how it's going to be from now on, you know? Or I could just, like, post short episodes every single day. But the cover of this is very cool. $37 in Canada! Okay, so you're never going to believe this, but this book would be $28 in the bookstore. But you want to know where I got it? Dollar Tree. I got this book from the dollar store. So let's hope it's actually good, you know? And I might start doing mini-sodes because I know some of my friends are busy. But they might still want to, like, swag around. But they don't have time to listen to, like, two-hour to three-hour episodes of a podcast. Because, you know busy. So I might start doing mini-sodes. That's a thing. I'll have to see how that would work out for me. But anyway, thanks for listening. Peace!